A reading from Revelation 21 and 22 from the Jesus Storybook Bible. Then Jesus gave John a beautiful dream, except John was wide awake and what he saw was real, and one day it would all come true. I see a throne, and on the throne is a king, and the king is Jesus. All around the throne, people are bowing down. They're giving him their treasures. There are loud cheers and clapping, clapping and bright laughter like a thousand waterfalls, and everyone bursts out singing a new song. This is our king, the lamb who died so we don't have to, our rescuer. All honor and glory forever and ever. And every creature everywhere in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea joins in. And then from all around, a wide, immense, beautiful silence. And I see Satan, God's horrible enemy, thrown down and defeated. I see a sparkling city shimmering in the sky, glittering, glowing, coming down from heaven and from the sky. Heaven is coming down to earth. God's city is beautiful. Walls of topaz, jasper, sapphire, wide streets paved with gold, gleaming pearl gates that are never locked shut. Where is the sun? Where is the moon? They aren't needed anymore. God is all the light people need. No more darkness, no more night. And the king says, Look, God and his children are together again. No more running away or hiding. No more crying or being lonely or afraid. No more being sick or dying because all those things are gone. Yes, they're gone forever. Everything said has come untrue. And see, I have wiped away every tear from every eye. And then a deep, beautiful voice that sounded like thunder in the sky says, look, I am making everything new. It was hard to squeeze all John saw into words and fit it onto a page and cram it into a book. All the words on all the pages of all the books in all the world would never be enough. I am the beginning, Jesus said, and the ending. One day, John knew heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true, perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew then that the ending of the story was going to be so great. It would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that is chased away by the morning sun. I'm on my way, said Jesus. I'll be there soon. John came to the end of his book, but he didn't write the end because, of course, that's how stories finish. And this one's not over yet. So instead, he wrote, come quickly, Jesus which perhaps is really just another way of saying to be continued, the word of the Lord. We're at the end of the book. Did you have your doubts we'd get there? 
Um, a lot of you have been in small groups. I wanted to do a shout out to the small group leaders. How many of you here are small group leaders? We had a bunch. Would you guys stand? We want to say thank you. Come on, stand. If you're a small group leader, stand up all the way, John. Thank you. You guys have done a lot of work. I know this has been challenging to, to lead the small groups in, but uh, we have gotten really positive feedback about uh, the small groups and the leadership there, so thank you. Right, so we thought we better tell you a little bit about what's coming up now that we're finishing Re uh, Revelations today, Revelation today. Um, next week is Palm Sunday. Uh, we'll be talking about the death of Christ, which begins Passion Week. Friday, there will be a Good Friday service. It'll be a little bit liturgical, but also Elsa is doing a monologue uh, to help us understand a little more about the death of Christ. There is no Saturday evening service. We've moved everything to Sunday to celebrate Easter. There are four services on Sunday. Six o'clock is a sunrise service. It's liturgical in nature. Uh, then eight, 9.30, and 11.00. Uh, we would encourage you to go to the 8 or the 11. 9.30 gets typically crowded, so sometimes if we can create a little more space there, that helps us. Uh, lots of visitors come at that hour. So that's Easter week. After Easter, we're going to begin a series on the book of Proverbs called Wise Living. And uh, do that into the summer, and then during the summer, we'll also be looking at the seven deadly sins. Um, Waterstone has a policy uh, that every seven years, full-time pastors uh, should or are eligible to take a sabbatical. I've not taken a sabbatical for 15 years, so I'm uh, past the time that you're supposed to do that. So the elders have encouraged me and allowed me graciously to take a sabbatical. So I will be here Easter, but then I will be gone until the 1st of September. Um, Sabbaticals are a time of rest and study. So part of what I want to do on my sabbatical is do a little bit of writing. I want to work on a self-guided workbook uh, for preachers. Uh, hopefully someday get it translated into French to be used with pastors in Guinea. When I was over there last year, saw a real need for something that could be used as a training tool. So part of my time will be doing that. I want to do a little more in-depth study on some subjects of interest around the Holy Spirit and prayer. Uh, most of the time, I'm going to hang out, spend some time with my kids who are spread across the U.S. and ones in Canada, uh, spend some time with Barb, and hopefully I'm going to catch a lot of fish. So that's kind of the plan for the sabbatical. Uh, the preaching team and Larry will cover the preaching, the executive team and the elders will handle any leadership issues that come up. So appreciate you guys' prayer for me while I'm on sabbatical. And hopefully you'll miss me. My guess is you'll miss, well, maybe you won't, but I probably won't miss you as much as you'll miss me until I come back. <laughs> uh, somebody asked me if I'm retiring. No, I'm not retiring. I am planning to come back in September with uh, a little bit new perspective and renewed energy. I'm kind of excited about the, the next chapter at, at Waterstone. So that's what's happening. Let's pray. Father, we get to talk about uh, what's next in terms of the big picture of the universe 
uh, what heaven is like. Lord, I pray that you would give us uh, insight and that we'd have ears to hear and eyes to see and we'd walk away this morning with a better understanding of what's to come. And Father, pray that that understanding would have an impact on us now that it would give us hope. So um, pray that your spirit would do that for us this morning as we work our way through the end of the book. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Here's the truth. You're going to die. Three people die every second. That means 180 people die every minute, which means about 11,000 die every hour or 250,000 every day. The day's going to come when you're one of those 250,000. Just a bright thought to start the morning. If that is true, then it would seem to me that one of the most crucial questions we need to answer in life is, well, what happens to us when we die? Uh, What is this thing heaven like? The thing is, as I've talked to people, I've realized that people really don't have much of a clue what heaven is like or what happens to us when we die. You would think that people who follow Jesus would have a much better understanding. Uh, Sometimes they do, but I've kind of discovered that they don't really know what's going to happen either. Part of the reason for that is we've bought into kind of the media philosophy or view uh, that says this. When you die, you go to heaven. Uh, Heaven is a ethereal kind of spiritual, non-physical place where you kind of float float around. Uh, When you're there, you become an angel, and if you're a good angel, you get wings. And your primary activity is to sit on a cloud with a harp and do something. And that's about as much as people know. And, And unfortunately, most of that is, well, maybe fortunately, most of that is wrong. What is heaven like? Well, in Revelations chapter 21 and 22, we get a picture of what heaven is like. So I'm going to give you this morning 10 things we know about heaven that we can take from these two chapters. But before we jump into that, I thought it would be good to set some background or context for the nature of heaven and earth. So I want to show you a little video from the Bible Project. It's a great video. We've actually shown it before, but it's worth watching again, and it will give us a framework as we go through this discussion. So enjoy. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But 
this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the, the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. It, literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. They do really good work, the Bible Project. Uh, I'd encourage you to check them out and some of their other videos. Their take on uh, the whole of scripture is just outstanding. So if heaven and earth uh, are going to be reunited, what is that going to be like? Revelation 21, 22 gives us a, a, a great description. So we're going to look at 10 things. Let's start with uh, verse 1 through 5. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among us and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He was seated on the throne, said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. So the first thing we, we learn about uh, heaven is that it's, it's a place. Uh, um, it, it, uh, uh, in fact, it, heaven in a sense comes down, the city comes down to earth. So in a sense, it's this place. Uh, this reuniting of heaven and earth is like two dimensions, the, the natural physical dimension that we live in and the supernatural dimension coming together and, and being made one. It's like the, the curtain is pulled back and things are, are, are merged in the new heavens and the new earth. So it's, it's a place, but it's a different place, but it's, it's got a very physical aspect to it. It's not ethereal. We're not floating around in clouds. We're not playing harps. We're, we're not just spiritual beings. We're going to be resurrected beings. And there's a physicality to our existence, to ourselves, and to the place in which we will exist for eternity. So it's a place. The second thing we learn is it's a place remade and renewed. There are two Greek words uh, for new in the New Testament. One is naos. It means new in terms of time. The other one is kainos, which means new in terms of quality. And the issue is, is God making all new things or is God making all things new? 
I used to think that God was making all new things. In other words, that this world was going to be utterly and completely destroyed and that God was just going to start with a totally new creation. That's what I was taught and that's how I read 2 Timothy 3. As I studied more, I've come to the conclusion that that's a misconception. That if you go to 2 Peter 3 where it talks about the world being destroyed with fire, it's really a picture of something being refined through fire. And that this word kainos really indicates that there's some kind of continuity between this world and the world to come. There's continuity and discontinuity. There's some things in this world that in a sense are going to be in the next world. We're going to recognize this as the same place. But there's some things that are absolutely different. So God isn't making all new things. He's making all things new. He's, in a sense, renewing the creation. It's kind of like you go out and you find a 1957 Chevy Bel Air, you know, the ones with the wings on the side. Classic car, but man, it's rusted out. The tires are flat. The engine hardly runs, and when it does, it burns oil. The upholstery is messed up. But you want to get that thing, and you want to refurbish it. You want to make it like new. In fact, you want to make it better than new. So you get the car and you sand out all the rust spots and you take out all the dents and you put a new coat of paint, but it's going to be better than new. So you clear coat the paint and put some sparkles in it and it just looks awesome. And you, and you just don't repair the old engine. You put a new engine in it and it's got a Hemi and fuel injection and now it's got the right horsepower and you put a new transmission in it and slicks on the back and it's just this awesome car. But it's still the same old car, right? It's still got the same VIN number. You can still see that, oh yeah, that's a Chevy 1957 Bel Air. Continuity, discontinuity. Same car, but totally different car. Better than new. That's what's going on here. The creation is going to be renewed, refurbished it's going to become better than what it was. Remember, it's in the garden, it was a garden, but now it's a city. The best model for this is the resurrection of Jesus. You know, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, we're told that Jesus is the first fruits. And we always apply that to ourselves and kind of understanding he was the first one resurrected, we're going to be resurrected, we're going to be like him. But Jesus' resurrection not only applies to us, it applies to the whole creation. Romans 8 talks about the fact that the creation is groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God because now it's under frustration. It's under the curse. It's waiting for the moment when it's released from the curse and it's, it's remade. And if you look at Jesus in his resurrected state, you see the same continuity and discontinuity. You look at Jesus and you recognize him as Jesus and you can touch the scars and you can touch his hands and you can have a conversation with him and he can eat and he has this physicality physicality about him and in some sense it's the same Jesus but then it's a radically different Jesus. I mean he can appear and disappear and go through walls and, and it's amazing. It, the new Jesus is like the Jesus that was revealed in the transfiguration. The same but different. That's what is happening here, a place remade and renewed. But it's a place transformed for better. In verse 1, it says that there will be no more sea. Uh, Israelites didn't like the sea. The Philistines were the sea people. The Israelites were land lovers. So the sea represented to them chaos and, and, and disorder. 
And the text says there's no more, see, there's no more chaos. There's no more disorder. It's as if the fall has been done away with. In fact, there, there's no tears. There's no suffering. There's no pain. There's no more death. All the consequences of the fall are removed in the new heavens and the new earth. That means the whole environment is, is changed. There's no more natural disasters, no hurricanes, no tsunamis, no tornadoes, no, no earthquakes. Now it is all made right. And the social structure has changed. There's no more murder and no more poverty and no more oppression and no more trafficking, uh, no more abuse. The social system and structures are, are, are changed. And, and our relationships are changed. Our relationships gets, get healed. All the emotional wounds that we've suffered are, are, are made well. And every relationship that is broken is restored. And there's no more regret and no more tears. And our physical bodies are different. Uh, now there's no more sickness or disease, no, no Alzheimer's, no diabetes, no cancer, no obesity. Our bodies are made right. And not only our bodies, but our very selves. We will no longer sin. We will no longer want to do evil and no longer be tempted to do evil. Every decision we make will be correct. Every word we say will be appropriate. We will be different. The same but different. It's a world that is remade, but remade for, for the better. Next in verse six. He said to me, it's done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. Now notice he's, he's setting up two groups of people here. In one group, he's describing the followers of the Lamb. They are the ones who vic are victorious. They're the ones who inherit the new heavens and earth. They're the ones who will be with God and are God's children. And then he gives us a description of all these characteristics, and these characteristics are just... Uh, Types of people who are of the beast, it's representative, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic, arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the, the second death. So what do we learn? We learn that, that heaven, the new heavens, and the new heavens uh, it, it is filled with followers of the Lamb but it's a place without followers of the beast. So, so we need to talk a little bit about, look, what, what happens to us when we die? We, I like to call this personal eschatology. Eschatology is the study of last things. What happens to us in the last things of existence? What happens when a person dies? What happens when a believer dies? Well, when a believer dies, the, the non-material part and the material part of a person at death is separated. Right? So for a believer, the material part is put in the grave and it de deteriorates, it, it, it decays, it goes back to dust. But what happens to the non-material part? You know, no place in scripture does it say that when we die we go to heaven. That's not how it is framed. What it tells us is that if a believer dies, they go into the presence of Jesus. 
Sometimes, a couple times, it's called paradise. Sometimes it's part of an image of God's temple and a room in God's temple. But the point is that when we die, Jesus is going to take care of us. Now, this is called the intermediate state, and we don't know a whole lot about it. We're not given a lot of descriptions about it. Some people think it's an unconscious state. I mean, after all, the wording in the New Testament, Old Testament, is that a person falls asleep, and resurrection is described as them waking up. Other people think it's a, a conscious decision where we are with Jesus in a disembodied state, which is a very uncomfortable state for us to be in because by creative order, we're to be embodied. That's how we are to exist. So we don't know if it's conscious or unconscious. Some people think, you know, when you die, it's just the end of time because God exists outside of time. So you die, you're with him, and then you're resurrected when he comes back. In fact, that's what happens at the second coming of Jesus. All those who are believers who have died, separated from the material part of them, are resurrected. And at the resurrection, the material part and the immaterial part come back together, and we become like Jesus in his resurrection, and we rule with him. That's what happens to the believer. So we, our, our destiny is to live in resurrected bodies, physical bodies, in a renewed heaven and renewed earth that's eternal and that is physical. That's, that's where we're, we're headed. Well, what happens to those who are not followers of the Lamb, to unbelievers? Well, death for them is the same. It's the separation of the material, the material and the immaterial. The material part of them goes and decays and turns to dust. The immaterial part of the unbeliever goes to a place called Hades, and again, we don't know a lot about this place, but it's a place of darkness and mystery, and it's not a place that you want to be. It's a place of death. And again, we don't know if it's a conscious state or an unconscious state or, or what that existence is like, other than that it's not a place you want to be. Well, in the first resurrection, believers are resurrected, but not unbelievers. They stay in Hades. But at the second resurrection, after the the millennium that Larry talked about, Jesus raises the dead who have not been raised, the unbelieving dead, and they are sent to the second death. And the second death is a place of suffering. It, it, it is not a place where you want to be. It's a place that is absent of God. And it's far worse than the imagery that we have. And we... We don't like that doctrine of hell, but it's an important doctrine. It tells us that in life there is a dividing line, and you're either a follower of the Lamb or you're not, and there's no, there's no fence to sit on. There is no middle ground. Either you're in or you're not. You have to choose one side or the other to follow the Lamb or, or, or not. And though we don't think about it, that reality that there's a dividing line in life gives meaning to life. It gives meaning to our choices. Life is not like Bunko. You ever played Bunko? It's a stupid game, right? You roll dice and you try to match the number to the round you're in and you, uh, it takes no skill, it takes no decisions, it takes no strategy. It just takes the ability to roll a dice. Life is not like that. 
In Bunko, nobody cares who wins because there are no consequences. It's like everybody gets the same trophy at the end. That's not life. In life, you make decisions. And in life, there are consequences to your decisions. And sometimes those consequences are eternal. But it's that reality that makes life meaningful and gives it significance. So there's a line, there's consequences to the choices, yet we don't like it. Uh, but, but let me say something here. Whether you like the doctrine of hell or not is somewhat irrelevant because your preference doesn't change the nature of reality. Either there is a hell or there isn't. And that's God's determination. And, and we don't like that. And you know what? We shouldn't like it. I don't like it. In fact, I think if you like the concept of hell, something's wrong with you. But that doesn't mean it's not real. It, it's part of the nature of who God is, a manifestation of his holiness and his justice. And it's the reality we have to face that gives meaning to life. So, it's a place filled with the followers of the Lamb and a place without the followers of the beast. Then verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down. One of the things about this passage is it's convoluted and complex and not everything in it makes crystal clear sense to us because it's imagery and it's imagery that is being used to describe something that is somewhat indescribable. So images overlap and, and uh, are mixed at times. I mean, we're seeing the bride, but it's a city. It shone the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, the jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates, and on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square as long as it was high. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it's long. The angel measured the wall using the length, using the human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper in the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls. Those are big pearls. Each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold as pure as transparent glass. I think what we learn from this is that this city, the new heavens and the earth, are going to be awesome. I mean, he's trying to describe the indescribable. So he's picking up images that, that would be at the extreme of what they would consider beauty. So this city is made of all these gems and streets of gold, and, and they're all symbolic. But the point is, is 
You're going to be wowed. You're going to be awed. It's going to be an amazingly beautiful place, this new heaven and new earth. I mean, think about it for a moment. Think of the most amazing, awe-inspiring part of the creation you've ever seen. Maybe it's Yosemite. Maybe it's up in Yellowstone. Um, maybe it's in the Antarctica. Maybe it's a, a, a night when you were out and viewing the stars or you see pictures of the galaxies. That kind of thing just awes us and we're amazed at the creation and the creator. But do you realize that what we're looking at is flawed? It's the fallen creation? That this creation in all its glory is not God's creation at its best? Because all of it's fallen. But in the new, and heaven, new heavens and earth, guess what? God will be at his best. We will see the creation that was intended to be. We think it's pretty cool now. <laughs> it's going to blow our minds then. Far more than we could ever imagine or understand. It'll be beautiful and amazing. And then he goes on, and this gets interesting. He says this. He says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of the God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. No, on, on no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. What is interesting, if you go back to the description of the city that's coming down, one of the things you realize is if you look at the dimensions, they're all multiple of 12s, which is kind of bizarre, but they describe a cube. It's like you're watching Star Trek and the Borg are coming. And that's the city of God, and you're scratching your head. So why is the city of God a cube? What else in Scripture is a cube? If you go back and you look at the tabernacle and the temple, you find that the dimensions of the holiest of holies, the inner place where God's presence was manifest, was a cube. And then you get to this text and say, hey, there is no temple. Why? Because the city itself is a temple. Oh, and the city is in the form of the cube. This is the holy of holies coming down, filled with God's presence, filled with God's light. I mean, it's fascinating if you go into Scripture and you, you, you try to look at the, the nature of the tabernacle and the temple, and, and you, you quickly discover that it's talked about a lot. In 50 chapters, the tabernacle is mentioned, and you go, wow, I can't think of anything else that's mentioned in 50 chapters of the Bible, but the, the tabernacle is, and you go, wow, this, this must be really important. And it is really important, because remember what happened in, in the garden is we got kicked out of God's presence. And the whole question of the universe that we've been wrestling with is how do we enter back into God's presence? How do we get into the Holy of Holies? And if you remember in the tabernacle and the temple, you couldn't get into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest could, and they'd put a rope on his leg because if he did something wrong in the temple, they would have to drag him out. And he could only go in if there was this sacrifice of atonement because this issue is you're going before a holy God and we're sinful and we don't have access. But now in the new heavens and the new earth, things have been remade and renewed and now God dwells with us and we have unlimited access to the presence of God the place is filled with his light 
And it says that the gates are always open. No longer will we be shut out of a relationship with the God of the universe. That's amazing. Filled with its presence and light. And then verses one through five, then the angel showed me the river of life, I'm sorry, uh, the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing the 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. And no longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no more night They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. This is a place without the curse. We're introduced to the tree of life and if you remember the tree of life takes you back to the first chapters of Genesis because the tree of life was in the garden. Now the tree of life appears again. Remember, we were barred from it in the garden because of sin. And the question is, how do we get back? Well, now the tree reappears. And it's as if all the consequences of the curse have been removed. You'll remember the consequences of the curse was that the ground was cursed. That now you would try to grow things and there would be thorns and thistles and weeds. And you would struggle to produce a crop. But not here. Now the tree of life is this magnificent tree. It spans the river that comes down the street of gold. It's on both sides. It's this huge tree. And this tree produces fruit every month. And just this is a fantastic harvest. And the leaves of the tree heal the nations. I mean, this is just this glorious creation, a renewed creation, a living creation. All the the consequences of the curse are, are taken away. No longer will we struggle to garden and to cultivate because the curse is gone. And then he says it's a place where we will serve and reign. It's interesting. Some people think heaven will be boring. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you go about all the way to Genesis, in Genesis 1.27, we are told we are created in the image of God. And the word there for image is sahelm. It's a Hebrew word that literally means statue or idol. Uh, kings in that day would take, make statues of themselves and put them in front of cities so people would know that this was their city. But, but in the creation, God tells us we're his statues, we're his idols, we're his representatives, and thus tells us we're, we're not to make idols. Why? Because he already has idols. It's, it's us. And our purpose in creation is to serve God and it tells us in Genesis 1.28 that we are to subdue the creation and reign, rule over it. You say, wait a second, I thought God was king. Yeah, he is. But he gives us the privilege of being co-regents with him. The purpose of our existence is to cultivate the garden, to subdue it, and to rule with God. And then when we get to the new heavens and earth, what we're, we're told is that we now serve and reign with him. In other words, in the new heavens and new earth, we fulfill the very purpose for which we were created, which is to reign with God and represent him and bring honor and glory to him. 
life in the new heavens and earth will be amazing. And it will be full of complexity and intricacy. And the new heavens and earth will have assignments and work and challenges. You, you, you take the complexity of this world, the fabric of this world, and you increase it 10 to 1,000 fold, and that's what heaven will be like. You will never, I will never get bored in heaven. There's too much to do. And then the last thing he says, it's a place where we will see the face of God. What's it mean to see the face of God? You see, the point is, not only do we have access to his presence, but we get to see his very face. And if you remember in the story of the scriptures, nobody gets to see the face of God. Even when Moses goes and meets with God, God tells him he can't see his face because if he sees his face, he will die. Our sin gets in the way of seeing the face of God. Seeing the face of God is seeing the very essence of God. But in the New Testament, we're told that we're given eternal life. And what is eternal life? That we may know God. And here that comes to fulfillment. Not only do we have access to the presence of God, but we get access to the very essence. We get to see his face. We enter into the most intimate relationship one can have. And we do that with the God of the universe. And we fulfill all we were created for. Heaven will be amazing. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians. He says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. The story of a woman who was getting up in age and she went to her doctor and she found out that she was terminally ill. She had about three months to live. So she began to plan her funeral and prepare everything for her leaving. She went to her pastor and she told him the song she wanted sung and the scriptures she wanted read and told him that she wanted to be buried with her favorite Bible, even told him the dress she wanted to be dressed in so that when people came and looked, you know, she would look appropriate. She's getting up to leave and then she said, oh, one more thing, and it's the most important. Uh, when they put me in the casket, I want you to take a fork and put it in my right hand. And the pastor goes, you, you what? I want you to put a fork in my right hand. And he said, well, why? She says, well, I went to all these church socials and all these church potlucks, and, and, and when they were cleaning up the plates, you know, someone would lean over and tell me, hold on to your fork. And when they said that to me, I knew oh, that the best was yet to come. You know, if I held on to my fork, they were going to bring out the chocolate cake and the deep dish apple pie, the best stuff. So she said, I, I want you to put a fork in my right hand so when people come and look at me and they see the fork, they'll say, what's up with the fork? And you can tell them, hold on to the fork because the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. The rest of the book is an epilogue that ends the book. And in that epilogue, we're told that the book is for us and for them, and we're challenged to come to Jesus because he's coming soon. We thought the best way to end this series would be with a prayer of response. 
And Larry worked really hard at putting this series together and the workbook and the small group material, and I thought it would be really appropriate to have him come and lead us in a prayer of response this morning to the book of Revelation. Revelation 22:17. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, Come. And let the one who is thirsty come. And let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. Let's respond to the book of Revelation. Let's pray. First, Jesus, we hear you say, come. And we want to say to you, Jesus, we are thirsty for you. In this moment, express to Jesus how you want to know him, how you want to love him, how you want to see him. Or maybe some of us here in this moment need to say, Jesus, make me thirsty for you. Take the free gift of the water of life. It's implied that we can drink of that now. So we pray, Lord, show me how to make heaven a larger part of my life. Come to those places, those places of doubt and pain, and bring heaven to them. So we pray, Lord, show me how to make heaven a larger part of my life. Come. With heaven in mind, Jesus, I want to be a faithful witness. In this moment, show me one person, one relationship, or one situation where you want me to mention Jesus. bride say come and let the one who hears say come let the one who is thirsty come and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life let's stand now and sing our hearts to the lamb <laughs> 